0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, Mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music. March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.
1: San Diego joins the rest of the state in saying no to the recall.
2: We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic.
1: I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The arrest of an Oceanside man in Washington, DC could be linked to right-wing terrorism.
3: One of the problems that I think we're seeing with regard to extremism overall is that we're a little late to respond to the changing trends.
1: We'll explore the increase in senior homelessness in the county and on our Port of Entry podcast excerpt, Affordable Care for Pets South of the Border. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.
1: Governor Gavin Newsom celebrated his victory in the recall election last night by telling voters they didn't just say no to the recall. Here's Governor Newsom.
2: We said yes to science, we said yes to vaccines, we said
4: yes to ending this pandemic, we said yes to people's right
3: to vote without fear of fake fraud or voter suppression, we said yes to women's fundamental constitutional right to decide
2: for herself what she does with her body.
1: Newsom racked up a major win in the recall with more than 60% of voters supporting the governor. The numbers are similar in San Diego with about 59% of San Diegans voting no with 70% of the votes currently counted. The question remains what Newsom will do with this show of support and what happens to his recall challengers, specifically former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. Joining me is UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Thad, welcome. Thanks. Now, I remember speaking with you a couple of months ago when the polling was not looking good for Newsom. And you said, despite that, Newsom would probably survive the recall. What gave you that confidence?
2: Well, this is California, let's remember, right? This is a strongly Democratic state that Joe Biden won by by five million votes, and that just gave Gavin Newsom such a, a margin of error. What we saw over the course of this election, though, was, you know, he he made some big moves right around that time, mid-summer, late July, early August, when several polls had him neck and neck. He gambled big on making this a referendum on COVID and, and on his vaccine requirements for teachers, for healthcare workers, on the mask mandates that his Republican opponents opposed. And as you just heard in his victory speech, that was really what he led with, right? It was science and vaccines. That's what he staked his governorship on. And that's part of what led him not only to survive this recall, but to to win a renewed mandate for California's approach to COVID and and, uh, and to re-energize his uh, not only his governorship, but his potentially future political career.
1: KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen spoke to some voters yesterday. We have a little bit of a soundbite from one of them. Let's play that now.
3: I believe that our current governor is doing all that he can given the circumstances.
1: That was San Diego voter Michaela Sabido on why she voted no on the recall. My question to you, Thad, what do we know about why people voted no on the recall? Did people vote more for Newsom or against the recall?
2: Well, since they were checking off the same box for both, it's, it's impossible to, to, to tell, but here's what we know from, from exit polls, right? COVID was the top of the mind issue uh, for, for the largest number of voters. It was the biggest issue in the campaign and it was the biggest issue, especially for Democrats, 40% of Democrats, but only 20% of Republicans said that this was their top issue. So I think that that seems to, to, to fit with, with the story that that Democrats embraced him, even though they may not love every single thing about the way he's governed for three years, even though they may still recognize the, the strong challenges that California places and things like housing, homes, homelessness, um, poverty, you know, uh, racial justice, like at least on the top issue of the day, COVID, he seems to have won a mandate for his approach versus the approach backed by all of his Republican opponents.
1: And there was another factor that a lot of people are pointing to that got Newsom uh, over this recall, and that was the entrance of Larry Elder in the race. What kind of effect do you think he had?
2: So Larry Elder, both galvanized the Republican base, really led to much more fundraising for the recall, a lot of people who are, who are volunteers. We saw signs that, in ways that we hadn't seen um, coming up in, in front of Republican homes over the last few elections. But he also put, I think, a ceiling on on both his candidacy and and the effect of the recall because he is very much a Trump Republican. He has what people love about Donald Trump, but also what people are worried about. He shoots from the hip and he said a lot of things that deeply deeply alienated, not only the Democrats who came running back to Gavin Newsom, but voters in the center. And and I think that made it both, put him clearly ahead in the recall replacement race, but also effectively doomed the recall replacement question.
1: And what kind of role do you think Larry Elder might have in California politics moving forward?
2: Look, Larry Elder is now the dominant figure in, in Republican politics in California. He, he trounced John Cox, right, who had been the Republican standard bearer in the 2018 election and, and, and now you know was, was un- unfortunately for him and also ran in this campaign. He solidly beat Kevin Faulkner, who many have seen as the great hope for the future of, of, of a bridge-building Republican a Republican who could get to 50%. All of them paled compared to Larry Elder, who if you look at his percentage, in this recall placement race, he did almost as well at 47% as Arnold Schwarzenegger did back in 2003. But that's a mirage. It misses the fact that 4 million voters skipped that second question, essentially turning it into a Republican primary. But at least it shows that he's the Republican primary frontrunner in 2022.
1: Now, Gavin Newsom now has this recall election campaign behind him. What kind of agenda do you expect to see him pursue over the next months? Could this embolden him to become more progressive? I think
2: so. I think he clearly has a a renewed mandate uh, and he's got the pressure to deliver from all the progressive groups that put so many troops on the ground to help turn out the vote for this recall. He has governed in many ways, rather timidly, not taking the sorts of bold steps that he took uh, as a mayor when he embraced same-sex marriage licenses, as a lieutenant governor when when he embraced a proposition on on legalized marijuana, he stayed on the sidelines and, and and hemmed and hawed on key issues such as housing, police reform, even vaccines. A few years ago, I think by taking a bold step and winning in this recall, by embracing his COVID approach, owning it and winning on it, I think he may be emboldened to take some stronger steps on progressive issues, things like single payer, healthcare, police reform, that if he wants to have those national ambitions for eight years, uh, two or six years from now, really, uh, he's got to run on that record.
1: Okay, I've been speaking with UC San Diego political science professor, Thad Couser. Thad, thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: GOP recall candidate Larry Elder made unsubstantiated claims of potential voter fraud prior to yesterday's recall election, but did not revive the claims last night. Here's Elder speaking to supporters in Orange County.
5: As you know, my opponent, Governor Gavin Newsom, come on, let's... Let's let's be gracious. Let's be gracious in defeat.
1: Despite the earlier claims by Elder and former President Donald Trump, there were few reported problems with voting yesterday. California Secretary of State Dr. Shirley Weber spoke with Cap Radio's Randall White about the earlier claims of voter fraud and the security of the state's voting process.
0: Secretary Weber, when you hear claims by some very influential people that California's voting process is rigged, what goes through your mind?
6: Well, you know uh, i I think uh, we hope not that we don't become too um. Uh, harden against the allegations that are untrue, you know, because these are not new allegations. If so, we'd probably be shocked. But they're they're old allegations. But at the same time, I don't want to become at a point where I start ignoring them, because every now and then there may be a grain of truth in some of it. So we want to make sure that every allegation is looked at in a logical manner without saying, here we go again.
0: What do you think statements like this do to the democratic process as a whole?
6: You know, I, before I became Secretary of State, I I, I said someone that we, we have a fragile democracy. And I don't think people here realize it because we've had people who believe so much in what we do as a democracy to constantly put ourselves second and not first. You know, we, we will generally say, okay, I you know, I'll, I'll concede the election or I'll do this or that because it's for the good of the country. But just to attack for no reason, to create a sense of frenzy among the public, weakens this democracy and what and so what we see which is was shocking to all of us was january 6th that's a serious issue and we need to make sure that our that our comments that we make about the democracy are helpful and help us to strengthen it rather than just allegations because we didn't win an election and we want to win an election
0: Secretary, we are on the heels of another election year. And these claims of rigged elections don't appear to be going away. So how do you plan to address this issue in the coming months so that when voters cast their ballots in November of 2022, they can feel secure in their vote, regardless of what others might be saying?
6: Yeah. And that's and that's a real challenge. We have um, what we've tried to do a couple of things on helping people understand their democracy itself and, and what this democracy is about and how they can help because, you know, we don't do a lot of uh, civic education. And so our first effort at dealing with the, the question of voting rights and what it means and the struggle to get it and how it fits into this whole democracy that we have will be the first one will be at Fresno in the next two weeks. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, where we'll have some in-person discussion with young people, as well as with uh, Dolores Huerta is with me on the first one, uh, as well as we'll be doing it uh, live uh, on Facebook and other places. And so we plan to do one there. We've got one, I think, scheduled for Sacramento. Someone has asked us to come to Merced. so we hope to, in the next 12 months, hopefully we'll do one a month, to be able to be, be up and down the state to really educate Californians. I mean, I think much of our challenge is really educating us about what we have, you know, what this democracy means and what their role is in maintaining it. That was California Secretary of State, Dr.
1: Shirley Weber, speaking with Cap Radio's Randall White.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
7: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. An Oceanside man was arrested earlier this week near Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C., For possession of prohibited weapons, including a bayonet and a machete. According to Capitol Police, he was found in a pickup truck covered with swastikas and other white supremacist imagery. The arrest comes as authorities are stepping up security at the nation's capital over a planned rally to be held this Saturday in support of the January 6th insurrection. As the nation grapples with a rise in hateful rhetoric and activity within its own borders, law enforcement and intelligence agencies are beginning to acknowledge domestic terrorism as one of our top national security threats. Joining me with more is Brian Levin, Director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism and a Professor of Criminal Justice at California State University, San Bernardino. Uh, Professor Levin, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So the man arrested in this incident was from Oceanside. Uh, What can you tell us about the culture of white nationalism here in San Diego County and in the greater Southern California area?
3: There has been a welcome shift. We are now seeing products and reports which were absent during the last administration. But I will say that one of the problems that I think we're seeing with regard to extremism overall is that we're a little late to respond to the changing trends. And what we've seen certainly since 2018 has been a shift, certainly with extremist homicides, end up swimming with the more radicalized people who have a folklore. Often, but not always, these grievances, Uh, monger are white supremacists. Not always though. And, And that's what's so interesting about what we're looking at. We have fascistic folks who sometimes are white supremacists, sometimes are not. And in this case, unfortunately, it appears that Donald Craighead had some psychological issues as well that were longstanding. How is America's
7: intelligence apparatus beginning to change how it assesses the threat of white nationalist domestic terrorism?
3: Unfortunately, we have seen a one-step-behind approach uh, with regard to extremism, and that's uh, when Daesh was expanding last decade. And then when we had warned, our center had consistently warned about the rise of far right violence, including white supremacy. And indeed, when I testified before the U.S. Senate last month, I said, we've now elevated our risk because of how widely dispersed the threat is to loners cells, including loners Like Mr. Craighead, who appear to have psychological issues as well. So, we're getting a triumvirate of folks, uh, newly minted extremists, if you will, who are cajoled online, people with psychiatric histories, as well as what we call the mission offenders, the hardcore folks who are looking to take this time of grievance fear, and social media overdosing during a pandemic for their own propaganda. And that's a problem. In your opinion, has there been a distinct shift
7: at all in how the nation approaches the issue of domestic terror since President Biden took office?
3: One of the problems that I think we're seeing with regard to extremism overall is that we're a little late to respond to the changing trends. And what we've seen certainly since 2018 has been a shift certainly with extremist homicides, to far-right and white supremacists. However, more recently, we've seen a diversification. So bottom line, I think the threat that we have from this widespread anger and grievance, it will bubble up in various locations. It's more regionalized. So you're as likely to see something at a state capitol or a city council meeting or county supervisor's fora as you are going to see these things that are more widely reported at the U.S. Capitol.
7: You know, where does QAnon fit into this rise in extremist ideology?
3: That is a great question. And what's so interesting about QAnon, is it is so elastic that one can really construct almost an idiosyncratic set of villains and targets. And one of the things that I also think, unfortunately, is a hallmark of some of the violence that has the moniker of Q or, QAnon, or at least the gift wrap, is that again, we have people who have either, for instance, the case in Florida, someone who is on meth, uh, and in this other case, someone who may also have psychological issues. So the problem is we have a multiplicity of offenders, some of which are like your James Bond type villains. But others, frankly, who are more of an idiosyncratic cobbled mix, some of whom become extreme because they're uh, stressed and have a peer group that they found online, which radicalizes them. Others do it in a more solitary manner, oftentimes social media and psychological stress or illness plays a role. And that is what I think is so interesting. It's a very diverse and regionalized type of threat that is different from the ones that we saw in the past which involve more hierarchical and organized groups. Now, no matter what your vulnerability is, whether it's anger, stress, psychological issues, or the desire for some kind of subcultural peer validation, that's what we're seeing with regard to extremists. We're also seeing this with respect to hate crime. What I'm saying is we're seeing a democratization of symbolic targeted violence, of which hate crime and terrorism is a part of.
7: You know, today we remember the 58th anniversary of the Birmingham bombing uh, and on the heels of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and just ahead of this rally in D.C., what stands out to you in terms of how this country um, treats and has focused on external threats of terror versus white nationalist domestic terrorism?
3: The bottom line is, is we have to have the alacrity to respond early to all these threats. And we are at a place of realignment. However, as of now, Certainly, the shorter term risk is coming from domestic extremists. They're most likely far right, oftentimes white supremacists, but they're not the only ones. We're seeing now this idiosyncratic mix. We saw our first violent salafist jihadist homicide in a in a few years, just in the last month. And last year we saw the first hard left homicides take place. So while far right are increasingly still the most prominent risk, it is becoming a more diverse threat matrix. And what we have to do is have the alacrity in, in how we approach this to tackle the ball being kicked from any end of the
7: field. I've been speaking with Brian Levin, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, and a professor of criminal justice at California State University, San Bernardino.
3: Professor Levin, thank you so much for joining us thank you. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for the work that you and other public radio professionals do across the country.
1: A recent study of the planet's warming climate predicts working outside will become riskier as communities endure more extreme heat days more often. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says that has implications for the nation's economy.
8: Josh Middleton scans a project blueprint in the shadow of a trolley platform at the University Town Center. We have to run a pipe from here to here, 33-1... Middleton runs Siege Electric. The firm is a subcontractor on the Midcoast Trolley Extension, one of San Diego County's largest public works projects. His workers, Vassal Chan and Brandon Shortreed, are up in a cherry picker under a track platform. They're drilling holes into the underside of the trolley bridge, installing electrical lines that connect to an electrical box just across the street. I don't see it on this column here. Only select columns under trolley stations will be lit so passengers can find the platforms at night. And Middleton says this work is fortunately in the shade, but that's not the case for every job. In fact, sun and heat can be brutal without special gear.
0: They make certain visors, your, your, your sunglasses, um, different types of cooling
8: packs. Gear sometimes isn't enough as hot spells get more intense, happen more often, and last longer. Middleton says the key is finding ways to cope.
0: Like I said, it's really based on the circumstances of the job environment. We would increase water intake and we would probably allow more time for break
8: periods. Union rules require extra attention for people working in hot conditions. Middleton makes sure his employees have plenty of shade and at least two gallons of water per worker. The climate scientists warn that making simple adjustments may not be enough. A recent report, Too Hot to Work from the Union of Concerned Scientists, finds outdoor workers face higher risks as the number of extreme heat days goes up and the intensity of heat spells increases.
1: Between now and the middle of the century, outdoor workers are going to increasingly lose work time because it's too hot to work. And in many cases, that's going to mean that they will lose out on potential earnings as well.
8: The group's climate researcher, Christina Dahl, says those lost earnings could total more than $55 billion a year by the middle of the century. And communities of color will suffer more.
1: People who identify as black, African-American, Hispanic or Latino make up about 32 percent of the population in the U.S., but they make up about 40 percent of outdoor
5: workers. And in some different occupations, those numbers are even higher.
8: The analysis concludes that more than 7 million workers could lose up to 10 percent of their pay because of extreme heat conditions that keep them from doing their job. Employers can provide extra protection and more breaks, but a report co-author Rachel Licker says avoiding work in the middle of the day doesn't always help.
5: Shifting work schedules to cooler parts of the day can in and of itself have implications that are negative for outdoor workers. So, you know, not everyone wants to work nighttime shifts. Um, It can have implications for your ability to see your family, your mental health, etc.
8: Licker says the federal government can take action to keep workers from suffering in the heat as it protects their pocketbooks. She says all those lost wages could have negative effects on local, regional and national economies. But Licker says... Slowing climate change remains the best strategy for avoiding extreme heat.
5: We can save you know tens of billions of dollars in outdoor worker earnings if we take action now. And those solutions to climate change we have in hand. You know, these are measures like you know investing in more renewable energy resources so we can get off of fossil fuels, electrifying more of our energy systems.
8: A recent United Nations climate report found that moderating climate change may be a good strategy. But climate change is already here, and companies and workers will have to find ways to cope with the extra heat.
1: Joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome.
8: Thank you, Maureen.
1: This warning about outdoor work doesn't seem to me like the usual climate change warnings about drought or sea level rise, because this is an issue all of us can understand by simply stepping outside. Did the workers you spoke with say they noticed that it's getting hotter?
8: I don't think they've noticed a a big change uh, up to this point. I talked with some folks who are working on the trolley extension project up in the UTC area. Um, And they kind of have a benefit of being able to work in the shade because a lot of their work right now is underneath that trolley, elevated trolley platform. Um, and, And so there are some breaks there. But you definitely know from talking to them that, Uh, they know that um, kind of respecting that heat uh, while they're doing their work is important. There's a lot of extra water on hand. They have uh, areas uh, where they can rest outside of the rays of the sun. Uh, And so it's definitely something that's part of their their daily routine.
1: Are outdoor workers already threatened by heat-related illnesses or even death from heat exposure?
8: Absolutely. Uh, 35 times higher. That's the risk of dying from heat exposure if you're an outside worker as opposed to someone who does their job inside of a building. So yeah, the risk of death uh, is is much higher. Uh, people who work in agricultural fields in California are very well aware of what it's like to be out in the middle of the day when the sun is beating down on the back of your neck and, and you're trying to do this work uh, and that's something that uh, uh, state legislation has att- attempted to account for uh, there have some been some bills that uh, require certain safety standards for workers there to make sure that they get the rest that they need make sure they get the shade and and additional water so that they can avoid any any sort of a, a death from heat exposure in California
1: now California just experienced its hottest summer on record. Is there any sign that employers are taking note of this new hazard for their workers?
8: Sure. The workers I talked to uh, in the course of the past week uh, were union workers, uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and that's something that their union is very well aware of. They have requirements in their contract that require uh, the employers to provide uh, certain things like water, hydration stations, and and have a plan for dealing with extreme heat conditions. So, yes, it's it's something even in temperate San Diego, where where the conditions are not as hot as say in the Imperial Valley, where we're looking at you know long stretches of triple-digit heat. Even here in San Diego, uh, workers are aware of the of the danger of working out in heat.
1: And you mentioned Imperial County, that's one area where more than 25% of the workforce are outdoor workers. And that's also an area where hot weather is expected to increase, isn't it?
8: Yeah, and increase pretty dramatically. Um, It could jump 30 to 50 days a year uh, with unsafe heat conditions. Um, You look at the temperatures out there this week in the triple digits all through the week in the middle of the day. Um, And that also reduces your productivity. And that has, you know, an impact on uh, economics.
1: And as you mentioned that there's this huge projected economic impact of it becoming too hot to work. Is there a concern that outdoor workers, though, will just keep working in increasingly hot and unsafe conditions so they can bring home a paycheck?
8: I think that's where the Union of Concerned Scientists uh, places a lot of their concern. That's a pretty big pressure point for an employee. If they're going to lose uh, a week's worth of work because it's just too hot to work outside, they still have to provide for their family. Um, And that creates a pressure to perhaps work in an unsafe condition. And that's something that they're concerned about. But even if you do take that time off, protect yourself from the extreme heat and miss out on that work, um, you know that's a big economic chunk. Uh, they estimate that uh, by 2050, um, if some of the worst global warming uh, conditions uh, arrive here, it could represent somewhere in the neighborhood of $55 billion worth of lost wages. So it's a pretty significant chunk there uh, as the climate warms.
1: And Eric, does this report predict different outcomes if more action or less action is taken to mitigate climate change?
8: Well, what the report's authors say is that if we do nothing and we continue on the current course that we are on, we're going to see some of the worse outcomes, some of the harshest outcomes, more heat days, more intense heat days, longer heat spells, they say there's still a chance to influence that outcome by doing some common sense things, which is reducing our reliance on fossil fuels, uh, boosting our reliance on renewable energies like solar and wind, uh, things that are environmentally friendly. Uh, we still have a chance to, to affect the outcome so that the worst of those climate changes won't happen and we won't see as severe an impact on the workers. Uh, And they say that's really actually uh, the best uh, strategy is uh, if you can keep those outcomes from happening, then you don't have to worry so much about economic uh, support uh, legislation or, or safety legislation to keep workers safe.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you.
8: My pleasure.
7: A new report finds one in four of San Diego's homeless adults is over the age of 55, and more than 40% of them are experiencing homelessness for the first time in their lives. The nonprofit organization Serving Seniors published the report called Senior Homelessness, a needs assessment. Paul Downey, who is president and CEO, joins us to talk about the issue of homelessness among seniors and what's being done about it. Paul, welcome.
4: Great to be with you. Thank you.
7: Why did your organization take the lead in having this report done? Is this information that wasn't out there before?
4: Well, it it hasn't gotten the attention that it needs. Uh, Serving Seniors has been working with homeless older adults for more than 20 years. Uh, We've been providing direct services. But when the conversation goes on at the federal, state, and even the local level, there wasn't much discussion about the needs of older adults. And as you noted, More than a quarter of the folks on the streets of San Diego are older than 55. So we wanted to put this report together as a way to be a catalyst for discussion about what the recommendations might be uh, to to address this, this situation. There's a lot of discussion out there about youth and about veterans and the chronically homeless, as there should be. But when you've got a quarter of the population being 55 plus, it also warrants some focus.
7: So can you talk about some of the reasons the senior population in particular is more vulnerable to homelessness than other populations?
4: Well, a lot of it is economic. I mean, that's the thing that came through loud and clear that for for most of these folks, it was uh, an illness. It maybe was a spouse's illness and the cost of caregiving, loss of the job. Uh, cost of housing, you know, other things like that that caused the homelessness. Uh, the numbers of folks that reported mental illness was very low, it was 27%. Substance abuse was 7%. So these are not the chronic homeless that we see that are need extensive and very expensive services. What came through is this is a cohort that can be moved through the system quickly uh, because you're not dealing with the depth of problems that you're seeing with some of the other populations. And so that really prompted us to look at really some low-hanging fruit in terms of some solutions to be able to, to address this and take this group sort of out of the system and allow the more extensive resources, you know, to be focused on those that are chronically homeless.
7: So what are your top takeaways from the Senior Homelessness Report?
4: Well, the the top takeaway was that it was $300 was the difference for the people surveyed between being housed and unhoused. So we simply, we asked the question, how much money would it have taken? So we gave them $100, $200, up to $800. And 56% of them said $300 or less. So what it tells us is this notion of a shallow subsidy. Uh, you know, If you gave $300 towards rent, could keep somebody from becoming homeless. And so $3,600 a year. Well, if you compare that to the cost of a homeless person on the streets, depending on who you talk to, it's $30,000 to $50,000 a year when you factor in police, fire, paramedic, hospital, etc. cetera. So it is a relatively inexpensive intervention to keep somebody from becoming homeless or somebody who is homeless, helping them transition back into the housing. The other next takeaway was that shelters were deemed really not to be safe. I mean, older adults don't want to be in the shelters because they are physically afraid of of being attacked. They're concerned about things being stolen from them and they're concerned about being around substance abuse. So one of our recommendations was was a real simple one, which is to create separate areas within shelters for older adults that are age friendly, maybe with a little more security, maybe uh, more space so that somebody who has a walker or wheelchair, you know, has space to be able to store their items, you know, and also bring in the specific services that they may need. So again, that's an easy solution. It doesn't require a lot of money and it can be done right now.
7: Why do you think senior homelessness is increasing right now at this point in time?
4: It's the economic pressures. It's illness. I mean, you know, people who have saved. I mean, they get sick. Spouse gets sick. Loss of a job can't get reemployed, and so you see that having a major impact. The cost of housing. Uh, Median price for a one-bedroom apartment in San Diego is just under two thousand dollars a month, and so that lack of affordability. It puts a lot of pressure on people who are on a fixed income. And so what we see is these economic pressures causing people to spiral into homelessness.
7: So what's next in terms of advocating and pushing the recommendations your organization has made?
4: Well, we've already met with the city and the county, the mayor's office, and then the county. Chairman Fletcher has been involved with it from the county, as our other members of the board of supervisors. So what we want to do is not be a standalone. We want to have this incorporated into the plans that are being developed. Um, I'll give you a perspective. For the city of San Diego, their current plan, if you go to their website, they're nowhere in it does it mention older adults. Not a single mention in the current plan. That's a significant oversight, and they're aware of it, and they're they're working to incorporate some of these recommendations. So, working through those two entities, we're also meeting with elected officials at every level in the region to talk about it and have older adults become part of the dialogue. So, you know, we're we're eager to actually see these things implemented. Um, you know, we don't want another task force, another study. We want to get things done and get them done right now.
7: I've been speaking with Paul Downey, President and CEO of Serving Seniors. Paul, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. When your pet is sick, most owners will do almost anything to get them healthy again. But sometimes the price tag is just too high and then pet owners are faced with the gut-wrenching decision of what to do, whether to go broke, getting your furry friend fixed up, or put your friend down. Well, a San Diego woman is offering up another option across the border in Tijuana. On a new bonus episode of KPBS's Border Podcast, Port of Entry, host Alan Lilienthal introduces us to Anna Ginsky a young woman who started a business that picks up pets in San Diego and crosses them into Tijuana for more affordable veterinary care. Good morning, Anna here with
9: MexiVet. So it is Saturday and we are on our way to go pick up our frequent flyer, Marco, who is going for his fourth and possibly final chemo treatment. Good morning, Anna here with MexiVet. It is Sunday, working on a Sunday. Sunday morning around 9.15, and I'm on my way to pick up a dog named Vida who is getting knee tendon repair surgery. Good morning, it's about 8 a.m. and I am on my way to pick up a little chihuahua named Pokey who has hip dysplasia.
5: So this is Anna Ginski, and as you can hear, she's a busy woman. In 2018, Anna started a business called MexiVet Express, and at first it was just a little side gig. But now, it's big business. She drives around picking up animals in San Diego.
9: Hey guys, how you doing? Hi. My dog is going to the hospital.
5: He is, he's going to the vet. Do you know
9: what he's getting done there? Yep, they're going to clean his teeth. They're all brown and dirty, not like yours, you just look very good. Yes, he doesn't brush his teeth as much as you do, I bet.
5: Then, Anna takes the pets across the border to Tijuana.
9: It is about 9.15, and we are crossing into Mexico right now. It's about 10.08, we're crossing into Mexico shortly. We are at the border, it is 8.30 and we've just crossed into Mexico really quickly. And now Vet Playas is about 10 minutes from this point.
5: Once in Tijuana, the pets get way more affordable vet care.
9: And we are at Vet Playas, and I'm gonna go check us all in, even though we are quite early.
5: Anna's ability to easily cross the border from San Diego to Tijuana is what makes her business possible, because the deals she gets at places like Vet Playa's are pretty darn good.
9: The x-rays here are $40. Pretty amazing. And I think the, the extractions here are around $10, sometimes even less, per tooth. When they extract so many, they probably won't charge the full $90. And um, that's quite the deal, because in the U.S., they can be
5: like 200 apiece. So because of the huge price difference between the U.S. and Mexico when it comes to vet care and actually pretty much everything, Anna's business is booming.
9: Yeah, at this point I have to build in a day off. Yeah, I'm getting really, really busy.
5: Back when we first talked to Anna last year, she was running her business solo. Now she's up to a team of 11 six dedicated drivers who help her cross the border with people's pets, and four other support staffers who help with things like marketing and administration. I completely understand why Anna's business is taking off. I have a dog that I found in Mexico. His name is Talco, and he's pretty much my son. Que we. Guess we. Eh? Talco is a champ, super healthy, so I haven't had to take him to the vet for anything serious yet. But if he ever did need anything done, I would without question do anything that I could to get him what he needs. And I'm definitely not alone. Most humans that I know will do anything they can to keep their animals alive and healthy. We love our pets. They're part of our families. Sometimes though, at least in America, the price tag is just way too high and we're asked to make a really impossible decision. Go broke to save our animal friends or put them down forever. Anna though is offering an alternative to that.
9: So we're here at Moana's home. Moana's just gotten out of the car and the family's had a chance to see her so... How are you guys feeling with having Moana back?
5: Hello, oh, happy. Welcome somebody. home, Moana.
9: Yay! <laughs> she, looks, she looks good. She looks happy. Yes. She already looks very acclimated to her yes, new she, tripod. She looks
3: comfortable. Yeah.
9: That's yeah. right. Yay! Cool. Yeah.
5: She's using our proximity to the border here to help families like the one you just heard pay for big things like the amputation Moana needed.
9: You know, it's, it's fun having a job where you are making a difference where you like really matter to somebody, um, where you're providing this really important service to them. You know, in some cases you're like saving their pet's life and they wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. Okay, another happy Mexivet customer. And now I go home for one hour and then I go back down.
5: So, before Anna was driving back and forth across the border to take pets from San Diego and LA to vets down in Tijuana, she was a barista at a coffee shop. And because she was on a barista's budget, she used to take her own dog across the border for care when she needed it.
9: And that started probably about five years ago. Um, My dog got a quote at a vet up here in San Diego for some dental work that she needed. And it was gonna be like teeth cleaning, possible extractions, blood work, you know, the usual. And I was quoted upwards of 2000. And I just kind of had sticker shock, like, oh my gosh, for dental. And I was talking to one of my girlfriends and and she was like, we get our dental stuff done in Mexico. Maybe they have like doggy dental in Mexico. It's like, you're a genius. Maybe they do.
5: Anna ended up paying just a few hundred dollars that first trip down to Tijuana. And her dog's teeth were as good as new.
9: Yeah, from then I was hooked. So then I then I felt this like freedom, this liberty to kind of give my dog the like Cadillac package of vet care. You know, like little any little lump. I was like, let's get that little lump checked. Let's do cytology on that. Let's see what it is. We can afford this. We have a hundred bucks. Let's do it. And I would always tell my friends, oh yeah, I'm going down to our vet and TJ. We're getting this done and this done and this done. It's gonna cost this much. And I'm like bragging for three years. I'm, you know, so proud and excited of what I'm able to afford for her and the care I can provide her. And my friends were always like, you know, that's really great. And we w- we would do that for our pets, except for, you know, we don't know the roads or we don't speak Spanish. We don't feel comfortable doing it. So they were always kind of pushing me like, "You should." start a business out of this. You're so comfortable doing it, you should start a business out of this.
1: So Anna did start a business out of it and you can learn more about it and how the pandemic has impacted it in the full episode of Port of Entry out today. Find it online at portofentrypod.org or get it on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts.